What's up guys, my name is Lizzie Opsnook and today I'm going to be discussing dead media and the language of flowers. Alright, so when thinking of media, we may be inclined to think of things such as social media, the news, and other forms of communication which impact our everyday lives. But these are not the only forms of media that impact us, and to be sure there are dozens of forms of media that pave the way to where we are today. Novels, typewriters, etc. I'm sure it'd be so interesting to talk about those relevant forms of media, but that's not what I'm going to do. I'm here to talk about dead media, forms of communication no longer in use. Really, it's every emo girl's dream. By dead media, I don't mean platforms like MySpace either, though there is something to be said about social media fads that go in and out of use. What I'm referring to are forms of media that have been dead or unused or obsolete since before the 1960s. So, dead, dead media. And there's more of it than you think. As a self-proclaimed emo girl, you might think I would have chosen to study something creepy and macabre like Thomas Edison's phonograph dolls. Not quite. In spite of my love of dolls, especially porcelain dolls, I've chosen something equally gothic to investigate. And no, really, I do mean gothic. The language of flowers, which was highly prevalent in the Victorian era. Not so much anymore. Flowers can be, and in in fact were, used as another form of language. That is to say, every flower you come across has a specific meaning and connotation. These meanings can be found in Flora's Dictionary, published in 1829, written by Elizabeth Washington Gamble. Gamble wrote an extensive dictionary of flowers that is alphabetized and broken down into the flower's subcategories of color. For instance, Gamble differentiates between white acacia, meaning elegance, and yellow acacia, meaning concealed love. This dictionary went through several editions, with the first one stating that it was written by a lady. It is only in later editions that Gamble's name appears. When we think of sending flowers nowadays, not as much thought perhaps, goes into the symbolism behind the flowers themselves. Generally, we'll accept that red roses mean romantic love. Some people might even have an inkling that lilies are used at funerals and have a connotation of death. That's pretty much the extent of our modern-day interpretation of flowers. Most of us, after all, will just run to the grocery store and pick up a pre-made bouquet that was arranged in an aesthetically pleasing, if not particularly symbolic, way. But that isn't the way that things have always been. In 1876, Harper's Bazaar, yeah, the Harper's Bazaar still in publication today, wrote an article about the language of flowers. The article starts off by saying, quote, it has been said that the language of flowers is as old as the days of Adam. Okay, religious affiliation aside, the article is making a bold statement about the prevalence of this language and the impact it had even internationally. While I'm not so sure about the latter part of this statement, I'm not generally inclined to believe that 19th century New York knew very much about international practices or cultural relevancies, I do think that they may have been right about the importance of the prevalence of this language. The flowers themselves, with this dictionary of symbolism backing them, could send a message all on their own, depending on how they were arranged and what went into that arrangement. Harper's Bazaar even provided a short dictionary of popular flowers symbolisms for the readers in that article. Hypothetically, then, you could send a bouquet of flowers with yellow acacia, anemone, and red roses, and mean to express something along the lines of, you're beautiful, which would be the rose, 
and I secretly love you, which would be the acacia, and I'm expecting an answer, which would be the anemone. The love interest may send ambrosia in return, in which case the sender's love is requited. Or, the love interest might send Belvedere, which would mean I declare against you. In other words, please leave me alone. And that first sender might then send bird's foot trefoil, which symbolizes revenge, and so on and so forth. Of course, that's only hypothetical, and it may not be the case that flowers were used that specifically. Still, they do have specific meanings, and it's certain that people of the Victorian age were generally cognizant of these meanings. This was the case in both America and England. So I think what might be the most prevalent is the use of the language of flowers in literature. Fanny Fern's Ruth Hall, published in 1855, has been studied as being, quote, a use of artistry for moral and social purposes. Fern used the language of flowers, a popular social construct of the Victorian era, in order to connect with her readers. The floral symbolism in her novel served as a way to effectively satirize the social ills that concerned her, according to Brenda Ellington, who wrote an article titled Sentiment and Satire, The Language of Flowers in Fanny Fern's Ruth Hall. In educational discourse, we discuss the importance of texts that reflect various cultures. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that Ruth Hall can be considered a culturally relevant text for the modern classroom. What I am saying, however, is that Fern's use of the language of flowers in her text reflects her attempt at connecting with her audience using a concept that her readers would be familiar with, which does connect to a modern-day interpretation of cultural relevancy and culturally relevant pedagogy. Considering Ruth Hall is presumed to be autobiographical, it could be said that this text was meant for a primarily female readership. Does this imply that the language of flowers only affected females? I would argue, not necessarily. But it is notable that flowers are commonly associated with femininity. Upon closer inspection of Flora's dictionary as well, many of the traits attributed to these flowers are what one might call quote, traditionally feminine traits. Excuse me, while I go rinse my mouth with soap, I could get into the discussion of gender and gender expression as a spectrum, and how it can affect toxic masculinity, but I digress. Definitely just keep that in mind. Alright, so we've made it this far. I've been talking about flowers for like, six minutes straight now, and I can imagine that you're probably wondering why this is even relevant. Like, That's cool and all! A bunch of dead white people talk to each other with flowers! Awesome! How is that relevant today? Why does it even matter? Does it matter? To which I say, I'm not sure. But I do think that whether or not you think it's relevant, there is some evidence that the language of flowers can still flourish in unexpected places. I can't help but to think of modern day literature, and by literature, I mean Harry Potter. I freaking love Harry Potter, and I don't care what anyone says, I firmly believe that it's chock full of meaning. Now, please excuse my quick digression into a theorizing fangirl. In the first book, Harry first meets Severus Snape face to face in the potions classroom. Harry is, of course, unaware that Snape was once his mother Lily's best friend. The first question Snape asks Harry is, what would I get if I added powdered rutivus fodl to an infusion of wormwood? 
Espadal is a type of lily, remember, lily is Harry's mother's name, that means, my regrets follow you to the grave. Wormwood typically symbolizes bitter sorrow. In short, Snape is subtly saying to Harry, I bitterly regret Lily's death. Now, I cannot take credit for this theory. It's one that fans have talked about for several years now. Are we reading too much into what Rowling wrote? She is known, of course, for integrating a lot of subtle symbolism into her novels. I, for one, wouldn't put it past her to be adeptly knowledgeable about the language of flowers. That example aside, the question still remains of whether or not the language of flowers is relevant today. And to be honest, I doubt it's anywhere near as important as it once perhaps was during the Victorian era. But I can still see some parallels between that form of communication and forms of communication that we're using today. Some might say, what is the point of sending flowers? They're already dead, cut from the ground, and withering away by the time you send them. What sort of message does that send to the recipient? But the fleeting beauty of flowers isn't so different, I think, from a more modern form of communication, specifically Snapchat. Flowers die in a few days. Likewise, snaps only last for 10 seconds and can be viewed twice at most. Flowers can be dried and preserved in the pages of books. Snaps can be screenshotted and saved for longer periods of time. Really, flowers are just as fleeting as our current forms of communication, if perhaps a little smellier. Am I saying flowers are like Victorian Snapchat? I mean, maybe? What it really comes down to is that communicating by flowers may be no longer the most effective method. But people still do it to some effect, even if the original popularity and usage are a little different now. It's evolved in some sense, but is still recognizable in our current day and age. Anyway, that's my take on the language of flowers. Go buy your mom some yellow jasmine, tell her how graceful and beautiful you think she is. Still stay away from poison ivy because, well, like, that's just common sense. Um, I would give you all Canterbury Bells for listening to me, to symbolize my gratitude, and you'd give me Camellias in return, to symbolize your pity for my poor emo fangirl heart. Alright, thanks so much for listening.